Welcome to The Parlor, featuring conversations with rhetoricians about rhetoric. I'm Ellie Chase. In this episode, Peter Dunlap and River Tomlinson speak with Jose Isaac Gere, Professor of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas at Austin. So thank you very much uh, for joining us. The study that we're going to be looking at today, uh, Nonviolence in Context, uh, Cesar Chavez, the Chicanx Movement, and A Poet Poetics of Deferral. This study discusses um, the social movement rhetoric among Latin American organizers in the 20th century. So we'd first like to get some background information to see like what got you interested in this topic. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. It is a, a pleasure to be talking about this work with you, share a little bit about some of it, some of the history behind it. Um, you know, in, in terms of personal history, I come from a family of migrant workers. So that means that my grandparents and, and my parents were farm workers, and they would travel around the country harvesting different fruits and vegetables and um, and that was their livelihood for a significant portion of their life. And my father um, actually stopped doing that after he'd gotten married and decided he wanted to go to college and try to improve their financial situation. And so I look back on that history as something that is I mean, largely unknown to me because I didn't have to live that life. And so um, I got interested in the farm workers in particular when I entered grad school and realized that there was a little bit more going on during this during the time that my grandparents and my parents were working in, in as migrant workers that I just wanted to explore more and try to understand you know where they fit in that larger story and so that's how I ended up uh, focusing in on the 1960s and the and the farm workers movement in California trying to get a sense of you know how do I fit into that story yeah that's an interesting point because uh like the 1960s history is really interesting and relevant in like so many different directions I think uh, just real quick I have a little bit of a curiosity question if I did my research correctly did you at first, pursue biology in your undergraduate years. <laughs> yeah, I did actually. <laughs> My undergrad degree, you know, from UT is uh, in biology, so I have a BA in bio from from UT. What inspired that transition from biology to rhetoric? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a really interesting story. Um, I uh, actually. When I finished my undergrad, I went to seminary in Dallas, and uh, while I was there, became really interested in preaching and preaching to Mexican Americans specifically as an audience. And uh, when I talked to a professor there about this, he said, "You know, if you want to keep pursuing this, then you really need to go back to grad school because what we've taught you isn't really going to prepare you for that kind of work." And so I said, "Okay, well, you know, I'll give this a shot." that's how I ended up pursuing communication is that through this kind of religious training and preaching. And, and so I find a lot of resonance in this speech in particular, because I do see these kind of intersecting threads of, you know, trying to get audiences to adopt a particular lifestyle. Oh, that's a definitely a very interesting path to take. So that does lead me to another question of, so you talked about how, you know, you got into preaching and everything and how that inspired you to study some of these forms of rhetoric. So I'd like to also know what kind of led you to 
studying nonviolence in context and the use of deferral as a rhetorical strategy, like how Chavez used, and what piqued your interest in that specifically? Yeah, you know, I think once I started grad school, I started looking at communication more specifically and, and rhetorical strategies for reaching different audiences and trying to persuade, you know, in this case, right, Mexican-Americans as an audience. Um, by a Mexican-American, I was um, really struck by the, the kind of approach to, Chavez, to Cesar Chavez that, was, that viewed him as kind of this idealist, as someone that had principles and had ideals about how life should be, particular worldview, and um, basically tried to explain his uh, persuasive communication in terms of those ideals and in terms of those uh, principles or those that worldview, and I and I viewed that as kind of a an approach that really cheapened his particular inventiveness, and so when I decided to study this speech in particular, I wanted to try to um, kind of say you know he does have those ideals and he does have a particular way of uh, living his life, but that does that's not the full story here. He's actually responding to a lot of different things that that's happening right now at this moment um and so by in some ways trying to set aside some of those ideals and some of those things that are really part of his his own life i thought i might deepen the kind of inventiveness that he really had and the way that he approached trying to encourage people to be nonviolent. and so um, so that's, that's really what I'm trying to do in the essay is say, you know, we know a lot about Chavez and we know a lot about his history and, and his ethics and, and principles, but he's not just saying, okay, I'm a Catholic, so I'm going to talk in a way that's Catholic, or I believe in nonviolence, so I'm going to encourage people to be nonviolent. Like he, it's, it, there's more going on than just a simple transmission. He's doing a lot of, uh, a lot of rhetorical work to try to encourage people to be as nonviolent as, uh, as he feels they need to be to advance their objectives. Yeah, I think that's a really valuable point you make because when we like learn about Chavez and other leaders in history, we kind of, I think, oversimplify the message of their, and the complexity of like how they present their messages because I think we often just kind of like tag a few associations with an individual instead of thinking about the, all the aspects that contribute to the leader's effectiveness. And this kind of leads to my next question, um, which kind of ties into modern day. As you explain, this rhetorical strategy of deferral offers a form of rhetorical agency capable of negotiating the tensions between nonviolence and Chicanx identity. So do you think this sort of strategy of deferral can be effective in today's climate, especially when we talk about like racial conflicts with George Floyd policing and just other conflicts facing the world? Yeah, you know, that's a really great question. And um, one that I think I struggle with as I look out into the world also and, and try to figure out how to participate in these conversations. And really, you know, Chavez is intervening in a situation where people are um, responding to violence. And I mean, the Vietnam War is going on and you have more and more 
awareness of the loss of life that's going on in the Vietnam War, specifically Mexican-American life, who were dying at disproportionate rates. And then you have people who are just trying to improve the lives of farm workers in California who are facing violence while they're out picketing and, and trying to get attention. So there is racial strife there, and Chavez is trying to intervene. I think part of the challenge with Chavez's invitation is that deferral requires quite a bit of trust and goodwill. And part of what I'm tr I try to argue in that essay is Chavez in that speech is trying to say, like, we can defer because we have these different uh, evidences that, that justify that trust and justify that deferral. And I think with part of what we're struggling with right now is trying to find evidence of trust and goodwill. And uh, without that trust and goodwill, I think it becomes difficult to, to be okay with deferral. And so if someone, I think right now, advocates for nonviolence, I mean, they can't just say, make claims to, you know, a national identity. They can't necessarily make claims of we should be nonviolent because this is who we are. Like, I mean, yeah, that might be appealing to some people. But I mean, Chavez is really going out of his way to say, these are the reasons why we can defer. But not everyone bought that. And in fact, as you kind of follow the Chicano movement after that, after that year, more and more people are saying, no, we, we are losing reasons to believe the best in our institutions and we're losing that trust. And so un until there's a way to get that trust back, I think it becomes difficult for people to adopt a kind of deferral attitude to institutions that I think are trying to do something about this or the target of some of this criticism. So. So I think that's a really good question. And I mean, Chavez would say, let's be nonviolent. But whether or not he would have enough reasons to support that argument, it's, um, you know, I think it's challenging. Yeah, I think those are some uh, pretty in insightful thoughts there. Since, I mean, obviously the time periods are very different. The context is, you know, quite different. And, you know, nowadays we have things like social media that also can influence the rhetoric of all these social movements, you know, everything virtual, but then also we see things, uh, we see how things go on in person. And then also the media influences this because you can see the ugly side of the for and against for all these arguments. So, uh, yeah, I think that was a great way to put, you know, kind of place Chavez into that. Yeah, that's um, a really interesting analysis of that. Another like method of criticism we've been studying is uh, feminist criticism. And we learned that uh, rhetoric can include uh, just more than openly persuasive words and images. And sometimes a political strategy is rhetorically powerful in a way to challenge the dominant norms, um, basically. So do you see any like connection between uh, this rhetorical analysis of Chavez's poetics um, of deferral and uh, the feminist analysis of political strategies? Yeah, um, you know, that's a really interesting question. And I think one that is we can probably do more inferring than, say, you know, Chavez would have been a feminist, right? It, like, it's hard to say, but it, part, of, um, part of what Chavez shows us is that he does have an appreciation of difference, which I think aligns well with a, a kind of feminist approach, um, right? Because feminist perspective is in some ways trying to help us understand the place of difference and the value of difference. Um, and um, 
even with notions of invitation, there is this element of trying to establish more of a parallel, non-hierarchical relationship in rhetorical situations. And Chavez, at least in his early years, he drifted away from it pretty harshly um, later on. But um, at least in his early years, he did appreciate difference and did go out of his way to, to point out moments when he saw males who were speaking down to women, or if he saw men who were promoting a kind of machismo in the union, he would tell them to, to stop and not treat women that way. Um, and he himself worked with Dolores Huerta, who, I mean, he likely would not have been as successful without her help. And so um, he could have obviously done a lot better. Um, and even in that speech, that I wrote about, he um, issues a prayer, right? God help us to be men, which is a definitely a gendered statement that could could have been much more inclusive and, and recognized the, the pivotal work women were doing behind the scenes. But I think by and large, when you look at Chavez's life, even at that time, it, it's the appreciation of difference that I think helps him or motivates him to try to seek out um, interracial partnerships. And so because of that, I think that we can say, you know, Chavez might have been, he might have definitely been resistant to some feminist ideas, um, but he would not have been too far off. Yeah, I think uh, based on the speech and how you'd written about it, it did seem, you know, these were things that he would have advocated for. Obviously, it uh, wasn't perfect, but, you know, he definitely did have a reputation. And so on that note, uh, whenever he's advocating for these movements, one thing that seems to be pretty essential, especially nowadays, is you know, the concept of having an identity and identifying with certain things that you do advocate for. So he's able to appeal to his wide audience because, of course, his religious training and upbringing, as you mentioned, he opened his speech with God Help Us Be Men, which does appeal to religious audiences. And so he's able to identify with this wide array of people you know, Mexicans, Mexican-American, and everyone alike. So do you think that his background, which objectively could be his situated ethos, was an important part of him giving his speech? Or do you think there was another method of persuasion that could have helped along with his religious training and background, but overall was more influential in allowing him to get his message across? Yeah, you know, that's a really great observation, you know, in that we can recognize in his statements an attempt to try to win as many as possible. I mean, I think you're you're absolutely right. And 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 part of it I think it comes from his, you know, he had experience as a community organizer, which basically meant, you know, he he went around trying to get people like do voter registrations and things like that and get people the help they needed. And so he had a lot of experience going to different places, talking to different people and trying to get them to kind of rally around a common cause. And I think that that experience definitely gave him the knowledge and awareness to be able to make statements that would hit different audiences and uh, and persuade them to kind of come together. I think that part of what he does also really well is understand how style fit into those decisions. So, you know, his his ability to recognize what was a, you know, Mexican signal or what was an American signal or, you know, what what was a, a religious signal, right? Like that statement about God help us to be men. Like these are all ways of stylizing his uh, communication that when people, his audiences saw that or heard that, you know, they could identify with those stylistic markers. And so, you know, 
I think that that we can attribute that to his experiences, you know, just his, his own personal life, learning all of these things, learning how to talk to different people. Um, but I think we can also attribute it to his sense of uh, timing. Like when was the right time to to have, like like he does in this 1968 speech, to have a tall white man be his spokesperson, you know? I mean, he that decision is, is such an interesting decision to make at that moment because he's got uh, Robert Kennedy in that audience audience watching, I mean, watching that speech with him. And he's expecting Robert Kennedy to throw his support behind what the farm workers are doing. And had Robert Kennedy not been killed, we might be telling a whole different story about Chavez, this speech and, and its kind of influence. And so, but that's related to timing. There's there's such a significant sense of what's going on at the time in, in Chavez's speech that it's, uh, I mean, I wish I'd written more about that because I, you know, I, I think that that is part of what's going on really helps him develop like i think as you pointed out the situated ethos right um it's situated because there's a kind of there are temporal limits there's a timeliness to that ethos and and he's able to really leverage that at that particular moment and it was a it was a successful speech by all accounts and that just a few weeks later robert kennedy asks chavez to be you know, on his team. And like I said, had he had Kennedy not been killed, then we might be telling a different story. Really good point. Just like trying to think about that in like today's context, it's it would be difficult to try to figure out in my view at least, like what the best speaker would be for various movements. I've been like trying to like go through my head and like what situated ethos would be like most effective. Uh, brings up another question. Is there anyone that you're currently studying or writing about that happens to employ similar strategies or is kind of a similar dilemma of trying to get as many people as possible, but also running into the roadblock of, you know, potentially losing people along the way? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm glad that you're pointing that out, this idea, right, that in the humanities, it can feel like we're operating on a different plane, you know, <laughs> especially coming from the, the natural sciences, at least, like, I definitely had to do a kind of a switch in my brain. But, you know, I did find that part, you know, it's just a different angle, right? And, and, uh, and one of the things that I feel like this, my work has helped me appreciate is the uh, negotiation of different demands and expectations that are, I mean, they are real and they are felt. And uh, and so to answer the question, there's an essay I just finished writing that is about this scientist in Mexico who was uh, one of the co-founders of um, cybernetics, right? The, the study of humans and machines and communication humans and machines. And, um, uh, but he's writing in 1969 in Mexico and he is trying to combat a kind of ultranationalism that is taking hold. Mexico at the time has kind of shown a very authoritarian uh, approach to managing the managing social life. They, they had just massacred um, students at a peaceful rally in 1968. And so when he's writing in 1969, a lot of what he is advocating for in this particular essay that I looked at looks like he is basically giving assent to the federal government, meaning that it sounds like he is affirming the right of the federal government to control social life. But in this particular essay, one of the things I try to highlight is the ways that he kind of undermines that ultranationalism as well. And so, um, you know, this essay is basically him trying to to ask the federal government to take 
over more control of how science education happens in Mexico, which seems pretty dry. Um, but how he goes about doing it is to undermine the kind of authoritarian tendencies of the government. So we have this kind of like, I think as you're pointing out, we have him negotiating these different demands. I mean, on the one hand, he's asking the government to do this thing, but on the other, he's also trying to put limits on how they should go about it, um, you know, which we might say, like, hey, he's he's giving too much ground here. Didn't you just see the the government massacre students? You know, why are you why aren't you protesting in the streets, right? But instead, you know, he's using the influence and the position that he has and uh, trying to kind of figure out a way to make his appeals in a way that's persuasive, right? Because you can't anger the federal government if you're asking them to do something, <laughs> you know? And so, um, yeah, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. There, there is, in the humanities and rhetorical studies, really we're trying to understand how humans negotiate these different demands and expectations and all of those things are, they are real. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think just thinking about like, um, political rhetoric in like the United States, for example, uh, how just like it's the way that uh, people try to make these appeals by like how by based on their audience specifically, like um, based like how uh, just like either mean or like how much they're like conceding just varies uh, completely uh, for an audience. So I think that's really interesting. So staying on the topic of just talking about uh, other works of rhetoric that have some ties uh, with your work, Jose David Cisner's article, Effect, Emotion, and Immigration Rhetoric, or What Happens When a Minuteman Lives with Unauthorized Immigrants, kind of uh, discusses the stigma of immigration in the United States. Um, and how well do you think this, the rhetoric of Chavez could like fit into the goal of talking about immigration in the United States and like uh, removing like the, the stigma that's kind of associated with immigration right now? Oh, man. Yeah, that's a tough one, you know, and it's tough because early on in the union, um, you know, one of the problems that the union struggled with was was related to immigration. Um, so Mexican nationals coming over to the United States and working as you know, farm workers were basically um, used at times to as strike breakers, or, you know, you would kind of use them as a reason to, to lower wages. So Chavez's union did receive flack because they were, in some cases, reporting these Mexican nationals to, to the authorities. Rightly so, he was criticized for that, and uh, the union, you know, lost people because they were doing this. Um, later on, he did sort of change his tune. It, once he was in his older years, you know, recognized, hey, we should treat everyone with dignity, you know. And so I think that how he would respond, it's a difficult question only in that I think that Chavez had a kind of awareness of what was going on around him and depending on the goals that he had was willing to kind of, you know, shift a little bit. And so if he, I think, believed that the stigma of immigration was something that needed to be addressed in order to advance a, more, a broader goal, like I think he would come out and try to be vocal about that. Um, but whether or not, you know, he might do it in a way that we would expect is, uh, is I think, a difficult question. Because he was, at times, so pragmatically driven that, I think, as we're kind of highlighting in this conversation, right, he was willing to do a little bit of a give and take. And, and for some people, they, 
these were binary issues. Like, no, you don't negotiate with, um, with institutional whiteness. We should not have, you know, put all our trust in Robert Kennedy, but he's like sitting next to him, <laughs> you know, like in having this media event with them. So, I mean, he might do things that in ways that we maybe wouldn't have expected, even though he might have leaned towards, uh, towards trying to reduce the stigma. It's hard to know just how he might have done that. Yeah, there's definitely a lot. And there's you know, definitely a lot of difficulty uh, putting the context of uh, Chavez into the you know whole issue of immigration, especially when it was something that was faced within his own movement. So I, I think that was a great way to put it. Uh, very insightful. There are a lot of there's a lot I haven't you know, thought about on that end. So I definitely thank you for that answer. Uh, just to wrap things up, is there uh, are there any like other projects that uh, you're working on that you want to tell our, our listeners about? Yeah, yeah. For those of you that are interested, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I I just moved to Austin, and uh, and so I'm really adjusting, I think, to living here. But re- once the pandemic is over, I think one of my first things to do is to you know kind of drive around and get a sense of uh, more of the culture that that makes up Austin and 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 the Latinx communities here. I mean, I, last time I lived here in Austin was more than 10 years ago. And so I, I really need to go out and kind of see how life has changed, you know. And so once I do that, I think I'll have a better idea of maybe what what's next. But, <laughs> you know, alas, we live in a what a time to be alive, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, I'd like to thank everyone involved uh, who is listening. Thank you. And thank you for Peter for coming out and also contributing to the project. It's been a lot of fun working with him and our other group mates. And once again, thank you to Dr. Izaguirre for coming out and providing lots of great insight and good commentary. This was a, a lot of fun, great learning experience for me. I think this is a field that definitely needs a little more light. People don't realize how important rhetoric can be. episode of The Parlor was produced by Ellie Chase, Adeline Gordon, and Miriam Murr. The episode features the voices of Peter Dunlap, River Tomlinson, and Jose Izaguir. The music from this episode was excerpted from the track Airtone by Common Ground. Thank you to the DWRL for making this podcast possible.